Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to see also i'm Brody lancaster kate is off being fabulous at the berlin film festival at the moment and i have roped in an incredible guest for a special valentine's episode of the podcast a special poodle all about a screen heroine who perhaps means more to me than anyone else um and joining me to talk about her is the author television writer comedian incredible woman <laughs> incredible woman monica heisey hi hi i ad-libbed that if you couldn't tell incredible woman <laughs> <laughs> okay so you just needed to fill space there that wasn't like a true <laughs> so it was regular true. middle middle to average woman it came from like my heart and soul it just wasn't censored or kind of like made cool in any way <laughs> How are you doing and how kind of are you feeling uh, on a scale of like accomplished coupled up woman to Bridget today? <laughs> um, I am somewhere in the middle, I think, which is, I think, one of the reasons that Bridget Jones is such an enduring person, because even if you are accomplished or coupled up and I'm not necessarily all of those things, um, you can still feel 
like her, like the person kind of wearing the um, brocade vest at the party. Oh, it really, um, it gets me down every time I rewatch this movie, thinking about how everyone around her looks at Bridget as if she's like hopeless and a loser. And I'm like, this is the coolest woman who's ever been in a film <laughs> to me and always has been. Yeah, I I feel like rewatching it now, I'm like, this woman is having fun. And the only times she's not having fun are when she feels she should be living a different kind of life than the one that she's obviously suited for. All it takes is like an adult to be like smoking with a group of people who aren't her family or a boyfriend for me to be like, this is a role model. <laughs> <laughs> Like a lot of a lot of myself today makes sense when I realize I've been watching Bridget Jones for like thirty years at this point. No, twenty years at this point. Just an adult smoker does it for you. <laughs> yeah, just a woman smoker with an apartment having an yeah. apartment is important. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so this film came out in two thousand one. Um, do you remember the first time you saw it? Like, what is your history with Bridget? I don't remember the first time I saw it. I would imagine I didn't see it in 2001 because my family was very hardcore about like rude movies. My mom was like one of those moms who hated Bart Simpson. Oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like looking back, 90s moms hated Bart Simpson. And if you watch The Simpsons, you're like, what could it possibly have been? that they? I think it was that he was a rude boy. He was not kind of like deferential to his parents. Yeah, he was like a badly behaved little in a quite like a, a sort of sweet retro way. <laughs> yeah, um, was badly behaved. So we it was there was a lot of like uh, this is a dramatic way to put it, but like censorship of media in our home. So I definitely didn't see it in two thousand and one, um, but we were a big Richard Curtis household, so it got in eventually mm. on a technicality, I think, um, and. I because I remember the scene where they have the flashback where um, Colin Firth catches Hugh Grant with his wife, and it's like it, it was quite racy. Mm. So I must have been like a tween when I first saw it, mm -hmm. um, and I was. We were all like I said, real Richard Curtis heads. So my history with this movie is as long as my history with the British rom com, which is kind of like from my formative years on. Mm. It's like your parents saw. Um... Hugh Grant dancing in Love Actually, and they were like, what else has this guy done? We've got to watch it all. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I have, I have like a memory of that. It might, it might be a false memory, I'll admit, but I seem to remember watching this with my grandma at the movies, but I have the same attachment to watching uh, Chicago with my grandma at the movies. Two Renee Zellweger joints, um, two movies that are probably inappropriate for children um and I didn't go to the movies with my grandma that often so I think I have merged them in my memory um but I absolutely did get a diary for Christmas the year after seeing this film and I think I still have it somewhere but my auntie gave me this diary that was like you know the pa the paper was nothing special but it was in like a leather bound kind of you wrapped leather around it and then tied it up with like cord. like she'd bought it somewhere kind of it felt very special and I was like oh this is going to be really special that and leather floppy notebook is like I don't know a, a woman writer who didn't at one point receive that kind of folio looking mm -hmm. like 
like leather cord that you tied around it to keep it closed. Yeah. I also had that. I think that's like a really formative object for a lot of, a lot of creative young women. You're so right. Because even though what I was writing and it was like, I like this boy. I hope he danced with me at the disco on Friday night, which is no word of a lie what I was writing. And the next page, he dumped me. Um, But that is, it made it feel like charged and like important because it was in a literally leather bound book. Um, But the, sweet, <laughs> the sweetest, the, my mom sent me all these possessions when I moved out of home and I reread it and reread it, you know, annually since. But it opens with me trying to do a Bridget Jones thing of like age, 12, <laughs> cigarettes, zero. <laughs> Alcohol, also zero. I'm 12. <laughs> Alcohol, see above, re 12. Um, like, but then also like writing down my weight, which I was like, oh, Bridget mm. may have started something um, that she didn't mean to start. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but this movie is such a formative, like it's in my top four on Letterboxd. It's like one of my kind of desert island films. But I, this is going to be sound so strange, but it wasn't until I was getting ready to talk about it with you that I bothered to like look up Bridget Jones on Wikipedia or mm. IMDb or like look at who actually made it. So I didn't know until last night that A, it's a Pride and Prejudice like yeah. interpretation and be that Richard Curtis had anything to do with it. But as soon as I saw his name, I was like, Oh, duh. Like yeah. all I knew was Helen Fielding. And like, I didn't even really understand the connection with Sharon Maguire, the director until I was kind of going deep on watching very old interviews and, and Bridget archive at altavista.com, which I'm going <laughs> to say is a really great resource. If you're doing a podcast on Bridget Jones, um but yeah so Sharon Maguire is her first film and she turns out uh is Shazza Bridget's best friend she kind of yeah Helen Fielding is this kind of like British Candace Bushnell at the time like kind of yeah. writing about her her and her friends escapades um when it was adapted into a film Shazza became you know Sharon Maguire became Shazza and as a film director she got to make this film about her her and her friends kind of lives um and I also didn't know that when Helen Fielding wrote the original book she kind of based the characters of Daniel Cleaver and Mark Darcy on real life Hugh Grant and Colin Firth yes Colin Firth features in the novel like as the man himself Colin Firth is a character in the novel or they talk to him or they become obsessed with him like he's name checked in the novel oh my god mm -hmm. I, I read the novel when I was a teenager because I was like a Bridget head but I haven't read it since so it's been like 20 years since I've read it um okay so have you read all the all the Bridget books no I actually only read so I wrote a novel a couple of years ago that came out last year and it was getting a lot of Bridget Jones's diary comps. Mm. Um, and I was like, I should probably read that book because I actually have only seen the movies. Um, and I read the first one and I really loved it. It was like, it's always such a pleasure to read the source material of something that you already love. Um, and the movie, I have so much respect for the way that the movie adapted it. It feels really like, loving and careful and and like all good adaptations like true to the tone and the goal of the book without necessarily having to render the book exactly as it's written mm. 
is the book kind of in the style of a diary or is it more yeah novelized? yeah it's that kind of adrian mole you know like how they don't use pronouns for some reason it's like i'm going to be laughing stock i'm exhausted woman um yes. which is such a funny reading experience there's yeah. something really like inherently funny about it because it's just so silly it's so true yeah the the diary like the narration in the film is like it's kind of sparse it's not there all the time but when she is going on the mini break and she's got the scarf around her head and she goes suddenly feel like screen goddess in manner of grace kelly (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um okay so you have been living in london for quite a while now can Mm. you tell me about the kind of move over there the movies that uh if any inspired it or kind of that come to mind when you're like, I don't know, walking through certain areas of town. (laughs) So I moved because I was studying Shakespeare, which is almost as embarrassing as moving because of Richard Curtis movies, but I'm clinging (laughs) to it as slightly different. Um, I would say that the influence that the movies have had is that they've made it so that I find like all of the British dating garbage a lot more charming than I think it actually is. Um, and that's that's directly sort of the British romantic comedy's fault, I think. It's like, oh, there's so much, there's so much dithering and no one's saying what they mean. <laughs> How lovely. And it's like, is is it? <laughs> this drunk is man it? hasn't finished a sentence. It's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> He's stuttering. That must mean he really cares for me. Obviously, it's been six months and he has not said anything to that effect. However, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I moved to the UK initially to study when I was like 21, just after university, and stayed for uh, four years. I really loved it. Um, I was just starting as a writer and the cultural scene there is just like amazing, particularly at that time. Um, the live scene was so exciting and uh, I moved back to Canada briefly, and then basically as soon as I could get a, a different kind of visa, came back. Well, studying kind of like the classics and having that backing and that insight really sets you up for the dream job, which is adapting Shakespeare into a modern context, which we are not mm-hmm. getting enough of mm-hmm. post like ten things I hate about you. Yeah, I know all of those, all of those adaptations, like not even like, I think a really successful one is or a mark of one is what happened with you with Bridget Jones's diary, not even knowing that mm. that's the source material. And then when you find out, of course it's a source material. He snubs her at the party. He says something rude about her. She turns him down. He's, you know, mm-hmm. there's like a rakish other man that she's involved with. Like it's all there. Mm. Um, But it's also its own thing. Yeah. It's kind of like a clueless, you know, scenario where that that work just stands completely on its own absolutely um, I only read uh eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld last year um and so that was my first kind of like non it was my first Austin adaptation that wasn't called like Pride and Prejudice or whatever um and so having that in mind while watching Bridget Jones last night I was like oh duh of course also like the parent like her parents being such a kind of part of the story as well you know her mom who's grasping onto this like status or like yeah classic like wittering Jane Austen flighty mom Uh uh-huh and then like kind of gentle slightly sly Jane Austen style dad Mm -hmm. a dad our heroine can like talk to honestly (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm going to kind of run through the plot really quickly because it's, so good and I started jotting it down like from memory and then while watching the movie last night I was like oh no the Tarts and Vickers party comes after that not before that um Mm -hmm. okay so it's a year in the life of Bridget Jones who is 32 works in marketing in the publishing industry uh she uh arrives at her parents turkey curry buffet on New Year's Eve where she meets Mark Darcy, a rude lawyer who hates that she smokes and drinks and is fun. Uh, She has a series of kind of bumbling work interactions with truly the hottest boss who's ever been on TV, uh, Daniel Cleaver, played by Hugh Grant. Um, She hosts the launch of Kafka's motorbike, talks to Salman Rushdie, of course, hooks up with Daniel. He sees her giant underwear takes her for a mini break which is like the truest essence of like dating in the UK I can say as someone who has never been and never dated in the UK um and then he kind of uh unceremoniously dumps her at a Tarts and Vickers party where she's dressed as a gorgeous little playboy bunny um and then she has to get over Daniel so she goes on an incredible montage spree of throwing out dating books buying self-improvement books, getting a new job, deciding she's a TV producer. Um, she goes to a dinner with smug married couples, which I loved to see Dolly Wells um, is the woman who got sprogged up, um, the kind of like awful pregnant friend from the TV show Doll and M. Mark Darcy is there, tells her he loves her just as she is. She can't believe it. He helps her with a big TV scoop and then helps her make blue soup for dinner, fights with Daniel she doesn't want either of them. And then she realizes the truth that uh, Daniel was the kind of like cad who broke up Mark's wedding, not the other way around. Goes to his parents' anniversary party to reconcile, makes a big embarrassing speech. And then they have a classic kind of run to the airport moment, except of course it's running to and away from her flat in knickers and a big fur coat. Um, and then she gets a fresh new diary to start her 33rd year afresh with Mark. Stunning. Really well done. (laughs) 
I saw this on your uh on your kind of bio on your website, Monica, that you are in the process of adapting really good actually for TV, which is very Helen Fielding of you. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, it's going okay. I just submitted the second draft of the script. Um, it's been really interesting uh, adapting it because one of the reasons I wrote it as a novel and not a script, I'm a TV writer kind of first, but one of the reasons I did this as a novel was because it's very interior and very inactive. It's about a woman essentially lying down. It's about a woman in the first year after her divorce at a very young age. And she's uh, essentially for the first third of the book, just lying on the floor, freaking out. So it's been an interesting challenge kind of dramatizing that. And I was really enjoying watching Bridget, Bridget Jones's diary with an eye to like what they kept from the book and what they took away from the book and um, what they had to change to make it kind of good for TV. Mm. The diary is also inherently kind of inactive. It's telling you things after they happened. And um, it's a lot about how you feel and not necessarily as much about what you do. Um, so I'm kind of having those same challenges which has been interesting mm. Mm. and there's also the stuff that obviously like the the narrator of a diary doesn't notice or pick up on so can't kind of log in like the the record of an event you know I'm sure I feel like Mark was like quite sweet and flirty to her even when she thought he was being like standoffish and <laughs> a prick <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe that's because it's Colin first I know he's so like cartoonishly sweet compared to I think our idea of what like a man flirting looks like today. Um, yeah. He, Mark rewatching the movie. I was really struck by Mark as an entity and like, he seems a bit drippier than I remember mm. from my, in my vantage point of my mid thirties. Like I think when I was younger and I was watching it, I was like, well, he's the nice boy. He's Prince charming. He's the one. Why is this man taking his work associate? to a romantic hotel and constantly saying things like they're, they're working at the dinner party as well. The married people, she's like, yes. Mark, come in. we're making all this progress on the case. Why did you bring your work to dinner? What are you doing? I wrote that down too. all the places she, Bridget ran into Natasha and Mark, they had to have been a couple. Yeah. We were not imagining Bridget was not imagining. Well, my hot take is that Mark, if they're not a couple, Mark was really leading on Natasha to mm. allow your parents to have you at Christmas dinner and do a toast where they say you're going to be their future in-law and the band does the marriage aisle walk song as like a little sting. That is so, it's so rude to then be like, no, it's not you. It wasn't you. It was you always this other woman who's around who you were probably stressed about in the first place. Natasha, you're crazy for thinking that we were going to get married. When yeah, I obviously I was rowing you in that rowboat as a platonic work <laughs> Yeah, obviously our mini break where we were one of four, one of two couples not involved in a wedding was because we're just, you're my work wife. Yeah, you're um, my work wife. And I thought we would go to a family party together on Sunday and work together on the lake on Saturday. Duh. <laughs> oh, yeah, they went from the from the um, the mini break to the Tarts and Vickers party, too, because that is when mm -hmm. Natasha looked at Bridget in that incredible little playboy bunny outfit and said it's amazing what some men find attractive and I was like Natasha death for you for okay, saying these that are, this is my other kind of like hot take on this this watch when I was thinking about it critically for maybe the first time and not just like 
watching it because I'd had a yes. rough week. Yeah. Medicine. <laughs> I would love to see more rom-coms where the other woman is is not cartoonishly awful. She's like so, so, so prim and like pinched and everything she says is kind of mean and like she's never really she's like not very polite to kind of anyone she's like rude and pushy to mark she's incredibly bitchy to bridget for kind of no reason it's like we hate her and she's the opposite of bridget but it would be so much more interesting to me if she was just if she was kind of fine but just not the right one Mm. Mm. you know if she was maybe an actual threat because it's like there's no threat that this man is going to end up with this mean like you know stink bug of a woman yeah and you know she has that interaction with perpetua who where she says like give it time give it time Mm -hmm. and i was like okay if this movie were made today i feel like a all the body kind of criticism obviously wouldn't be there i have seen the mean girls reboot but um also she like I think there would be a little more maybe empathy for Natasha even though she's kind of abrasive and awful she clearly liked Mark and was being strung along by him and there would have been some kind of like resolution to her storyline before he ran away with with Bridget instead of going to I don't know where New York with Natasha Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah all of the kind of women that Bridget is held held up against are I mean, Natasha and then Laura from the New York office almost look exactly the same. And they're just both like incredibly kind of 90s angular thin. And that's their main trait. And they're also so mean. To be cheating with someone and caught naked with like a a dossier covering (laughs) you in their bathroom. You know, publishing. Yeah. You know, you put your Y2K glasses on, nothing else. And then you perch on the edge of the tub waiting for their girlfriend to come in. It's like, you don't have to say, I thought you said she was thin. In what context would he have said that? Like, what was the conversation? And then in what world, when you already ruined this woman's life, is it appropriate to talk that way in front of her? Like, she doesn't need to be, she could, they could even have directed that actress to have remorse on her face. She could feel bad about it. You know, you don't have, like, it just makes Bridget, this like the only good thing and it's like no all these women are these are not men who are being nice to these women no yes the same power would have come from that scene if she had looked at Daniel and said like I thought you said this was over or whatever yeah um yeah and then that launches into Bridget's kind of she didn't know who she was at all yeah I've never heard of this yes and then to see her in the office, like leaning over his desk. Oh, Rich. Uh, yeah. She's so 32 in that moment too, where like <laughs> when I was a kid, I would have thought 32 was so grown up. And now I see Bridget at work with kind of like a messy ponytail. And I'm like, that's a 32 year old professional woman. Yeah. She's figuring <laughs> it out. Yeah, <laughs> she, she doesn't have to be perpetua to be grown up. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that it's the Natasha kind of heartbreak that spurs her into oh that's when she watches fatal attraction <laughs> great yes um and she has the kind of like self affirmation montage which of course involves just like fucking shit up at the gym um that's where <laughs> she says i would not be defeated by a bad man and an american stick insect i choose vodka and chaka khan 
And that's when she just decides she's going to be a TV producer because, of course, the classifieds are filled with like 20 TV producer jobs. Yeah, incredible. And that's just how you get into the industry is you just like circle the newspaper until somebody gives you a job. It's famously an entry-level career. I do really have a soft spot for sit-up Britain. (laughs) I love – well, she stayed there for how long? Like 15 years until – that was the moment I cracked in Bridget Jones's baby is when that same producer walks into the room and goes, Bridget Jones had her baby. And I at home during lockdown, like four (laughs) years ago, just went, oh. I have to say, I don't recognize the sequels. I, they are not part of my Bridget Jones experience. We were, I'm at my friend Katie's house and we just let the movies roll on last night. Mm -hmm. We watched all of the second one and a fair bit of the third one. And I was like, whatever they were doing in the first one, they didn't do yeah. for these other ones. And it, you think that it's like just this triumph of casting, but it's actually all of these elements had to come together. And there are so many things that don't happen in the second one that happened or the third one that happened so beautifully in the first. Yeah, I am 100% with you. Like, to me, the second film is about her going to jail in Thailand mm-hmm. and having a kind of um, – in Australia, there was a very famous case in, like, the 2000s, like, when I was growing up where um, – we've talked about her on the podcast before, but this woman called Chappelle Corby was on holiday in Bali and got arrested for having weed in her boogie board case – and was in jail for like over a decade in Indonesia. Like Indonesian prison could have died, could have been sentenced to death. And she now like makes acrylic clocks in Queensland. She's free. But <laughs> all that is to say, that is my memory of Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason. But yeah. I, because I have watched it so rarely. Bridget Jones's Baby, I've seen like, tw- I've seen like one more time since that first watch where I blubbered. Um, and it opened... It opens with her going to Glastonbury and like punning with Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. Okay, so whatever was in the water in the year 2000 when they were making the original just had been flushed away by then. It feels like the difference between the 90s and the 2000s. I can't quite explain what I mean by that, but there's just, there's like a coziness and a pre-internet kind of like... Mm griminess like to the first movie that it just doesn't quite sit in the the shinier more modern world of the second movies mm-hmm. and third movie um yeah it and like i also think it commits the, a cardinal sin of a sequel which is that the characters are constantly talking about what happened in the first movie as if not, as if they haven't been living a life the Sex and the City movie the kind of is, does a similar yeah. thing where it's like they were just frozen in amber and then this is their first day awake since the last movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, it's like, I don't want to see Daniel Cleaver referencing the fact that they used to have sex or like a re- to, to redo the fight scene mm-hmm. again and not give us anything different. There's no twist on it. There's nothing. I guess they're in a fountain is the twist. Yeah. It just feels like you can't just do a pale imitation of the thing that worked. Yeah. You it, have it, to do your own thing. It's not it's not fan service at a point, you know, like um they do these kind of things in like the big sci-fi, you know, like the Star Wars reboot from like ten years ago. That was just 
the original film, but with a girl, <laughs> like, you know, but with different characters now and with different names, but it's the same plot points and beats and, you know, you're supposed to cheer when you see a person or a scenario kind of repeat itself. Yeah, you're so yeah. right. That idea that they haven't been doing and living any kind of life that they would be referencing now only the stuff that we've seen Sharon Maguire apparently wants to make a fourth film she's like I'd do it Renee would do it um Hugh Grant's done but I'm sure yeah, Colin Firth would come back yeah he's R.A.P. to Daniel Cleaver killed him. <laughs> it's the only way they could get him out of there he was yeah like, Hugh Grant okay we have to talk about Hugh Grant for like 75 minutes but yeah he hates being a celebrity yeah. Have you do you follow his Twitter account, Hacked Off Hugh? No. <laughs> it's so good. So What's I'm not on doing Twitter over anymore because I value my my mental well being. But slay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was really obsessed with his Twitter account, which is at Hacked Off Hugh, and he expounds about the issues of the day. Uh, he's almost always cranky. Mm-hmm. He got it, I think, to start because he was a really big. Um, he was very vocal during the phone hacking media trials in the mm-hmm. UK. Really against it, rightly so. He's been affected by it. It's bullshit, absolutely. Um, but he's pretty much upset about basically everything. Yeah, and I love it for him. I love he's, it for me. I love yeah. it for all of us. He's such a curmudgeon. Yeah. Um, and kind of going back and watching old interviews with him from this era, I'm realizing like he always was, even when yeah. his, it it almost was worse when his um, kind of public persona or the perception of him was this like little dandy who's like hopping fences and has floppy hair. And, you know, I, I feel like he had some kind of, he, not some kind of, he had a real resentment to the kind of, what Richard Curtis turned him into, but also such reverence for Richard Curtis and his work. Like he famously only signed on to this movie because they eventually got Richard Curtis to do the rewrite before then. I think um, uh, Sharon Maguire and Helen Fielding were kind of hunting him down and he was like, no, I'm not interested. Just get Richard Curtis. And then kind of immediately signed on the dotted line. But he, he did. Okay. I've dug up so many bizarre old websites that have like great interviews from like the year 2000 with this cast. But um, one of them is cinema.com that has this interview where Hugh Grant not only talks about how uh, fearful he was that Renee Zellweger wouldn't be able to do the accent and describes mm. her as sounding like a, you know, kind of Princess Anne and like that she just really was fucking it up. But he talked about how he's, you know, I'm sick to death of Mr. Nice Guy. This is the year 2000. I've done yeah. way too much of it recently. It's made the rest of the world start to vomit. So Bridget Jones was a blessed release. And then he talks about how he knows Bridget Jones and he loved the book because, quote, we live in a world of Chardonnays and cigarettes and sort of hopelessness. <laughs> <laughs> but he was kind of coming off. I didn't kind of put this together in like the timeline in my head, but he was coming off that arrest for kind of meeting a sex yeah. worker he was coming off the very long relationship with Liz Hurley. So he was like a real fixture of tabloids as a bad boy. Um, and he said the day after he was arraigned, there's this this incredible interview in Talk magazine that, again, I found on org <laughs> that 
this whoever this journalist was got so much access to him essentially got him drunk and oh. then at like the four well maybe didn't get him drunk but he got drunk during the course of the interview yeah and like the four hour mark like imagine having more than four hours with a celebrity for a profile but um he turned from the kind of foppish Hugh Grant into like honest Hugh Grant basically yeah and he talked about how the day after he was arraigned and like his mugshot was everywhere. I can picture that mugshot in my ma- in my mind. He said Joe Roth from Disney, who I assume is like the CEO or something, called him and said, please, I beg you on bended knees to do 101 Dalmatians. You can't get more family oriented than that. And he essentially got, he said he got so many more offers after the arrest than before because oh. people all of a sudden saw him not just as four weddings and a funeral kind of hopeless romantic Hugh Grant, and then he said, I've never turned down anything that's gone on to be a success except the villain in Titanic. And I'm still delighted I didn't do that. Imagine. That would have been ti- crazy. A Titanic with Billy's, no Billy Zane and Hugh Grant instead. No, 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 no. Yeah. But then essentially Bridget Jones kind of reignited his like leading man career. And then like, um, and Notting Hill as well. So of course, two, two Richard projects. Yeah, I got the sense that he was very excited to be playing a character maybe closer to his own reality in Bridget Jones's diary, like kind of a womanizing, like sly, posh, smart, but kind of bad boy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was I was watching it last night with my friend, and I've never experienced this before. She was like, Hugh Grant leaves me cold. I was like, what? Are you seeing the way he's wearing this dress shirt? She was like, it's just not doing it for me. He's so clean and like tidy and prim. And I was like, I I feel like I need to go for a walk. Like, I don't know. I don't understand what I'm hearing. Yeah. Hugh Grant in this movie and in, in Notting Hill, he's almost impossible to look at in Notting Hill for me. Yeah, a hundred percent. The idea that he's he's too clean I'm like no (laughs) the whole thing with Hugh Grant is visually he looks like if you kissed him he would like taste like booze (laughs) I for me it's um it's William Thacker watching the movie with his scuba goggles on because he can't find his glasses Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's it when he goes to um see her at the hotel and Alec Baldwin's there and he just takes out the trash he adios is the dishes he adios is the dish in this he is he's he's giving me so um he's he's giving me like the best bombshell on love island in the way <laughs> that he flirts with her when he first takes her home from the kafka's motorbike launch and like loves her big giant knickers mm. i was like this is like the couple on love island who are like uh, the only reason we're not watching them have sex is because they know cameras are on them. But when they go into the hideaway, um, it's just like they throw something over the camera so they can't be seen. Like, that's the energy that Hugh Grant gives me in this movie that I'm just like, oh, my God, he just wants to fuck her everywhere. <laughs> he's a really well-written character. And he's I think Hugh Grant, one of his like real major skills and something that we don't have a lot of in the romantic comedy space anymore is actors who are willing to commit male actors who are willing to commit like the all everything to the role and to like tap into their own 
natural charisma and natural, however they are naturally when they're flirting and to really commit to that kind of a role, the way that they would commit to like a big dramatic role, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's, you have actors willing to go method for like the revenant or whatever, but they won't commit fully to dialogue where they're being charming or where they're falling in love or where they're trying to seduce someone or where they've behaved badly emotionally. And those are stories that are just as big and compelling and require a lot of skill from an actor. What Hugh Grant is doing in this movie is really impressive and a lesser actor would have just played a boring villain, but this man is charming and pathetic and like sexy and mean and like bitchy and like, uh, you know, believably the boss at the company. And like, they, it's, it's a, he brings a lot of complexity to this role that could just be like the bad sex guy. Mm. Yeah. You're so right. I like, I realized last night watching it that I have kind of had a crush on both of these men since I was like 12 years old <laughs> and that power to be, a grown man in a film who like teenagers have a crush on just as much as their mums is like, it's so intense and powerful. And it's something you don't get when the only romantic comedies are made like direct for streamers with like 19 year olds. They've plucked off like, you know, an acting class in Sydney or whatever and put in the leading role. And all those, all those actors want to do is be in a Christopher Nolan movie And so they don't see these as anything that they need to kind of invest in. But you're so right. I remember when the, I hate to use this term, but the reconnaissance was kicking off like 10 years ago (laughs) with True Detective. And the discourse around that was like, who knew? Like who knew Matthew McConaughey could act like this? And everyone who has seen, I don't know, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days or any number you know um the wedding planner was like we knew because he's been like acting his butt off falling in love with women on screen for a really long time and he I will never forget this kind of sweet thing that Matthew McConaughey said where he was like it's so much harder as an actor to play someone who can fall in love and can be like the object of someone's affection on screen than it is to be brooding and like dark and you know yes. it requires so much less of you to be this like prestigious kind of male actor my like big hot take with the romantic comedy genre in general is that for some reason it is judged by the lowest level entries into the genre and we don't treat other genres like that when we think about horror movies we don't think about straight to tv low budget crappy mm-hmm quickly written horror movies. We think about like the cream of the crop. And so we have respect for what a good horror movie is while still knowing that there are lots of very bad horror movies out there. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, and I hate to just be like, this is misogyny. No one takes women seriously. It probably is that. Mm -hmm. When we talk about romantic comedies, it's like, we know when Harry Met Sally exists. We know Bridget Jones's Diary exists but we don't talk about this genre like it's produced those movies. Mm. We talk about it like it's Hallmark movies or Christmas movies or whatever, which are their own thing, but they're certainly probably, I think even the people who make those movies would probably agree, not like high art cinema, but like the best examples of the rom-com genre are some of the most beloved movies that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really understand why it's such a malign genre when it's produced those things as well. It feels like we're in like a really, and 
I'm so glad I'm talking to you about this as someone who's like just made a romantic comedy series and you know is like in this industry but it really does feel like we're in a moment with the rom-com where all there is is talk about how it's over or it's dead or it's gone away or it's like every new you know starstruck by Rose Matafeo is like the return of the rom-com but then so was the thing that came before that and so is the thing that comes after it like I feel like everyone is ready for this to be kind of a genre that doesn't exist anymore Mm. and it's there's no kind of reverence for the stuff being made now and I would love to hear what you are into kind of recently in the rom-com genre but also I think everyone needs to like take a sec to be like okay it's because you you can't just put two people on screen and have them kiss yeah there has to be comedy and also chemistry which is what has been lacking in some of the like you know, major studio attempts. Yes. I think one of the things that's strange is that some of our best examples of contemporary rom-coms, they just don't call them rom-coms. Mm. Like Catastrophe is an amazing romantic mm. comedy. The second season of Fleabag is a fantastic romantic comedy. Mr. and Mrs. Smith on Amazon, which is so great and sexy and funny and strange and dark, is a fantastic romantic comedy. And because for whatever reason we're taking those television series is seriously Mm -hmm. they just don't get tarred with the romantic comedy brush even though they are comedies about romantic relationships I mean I don't know how what else you would describe them as really yeah yeah so I find that really frustrating And, and then that that whole genre of like I think again that whole like genre of discussion that's like uh, are romantic comedies dead or like finally a good romantic comedy? It's like, I think they, sometimes people resort to that when you've made a good romantic comedy, you made a good thing and they're like, oh, I guess this is good. Is the entire thing it's trying to do bad? Like, it's just a way to like loop back around to diminishing this like good piece of work. If there's nothing like that bad to say about it, if you've successfully done the thing you set out to do, um, you get these like weird workaround headlines that are like the terrible, shitty, crappy genre romantic comedy sucks so much ass, except this one, which is pretty good actually. And you're like, why, why didn't you just say this was good? Yeah. <laughs> just say this was good. You know, you're allowed to just like a thing. Well, and like we have so many ex- good and bad examples of every kind of piece of art now it would be so insane to review a novel like a detective novel and be like most detective novels suck ass this one's all right though like just just engage with the work that you're looking at mm. um, I, I wonder what it is that started the kind of the idea that rom-coms are inherently kind of like shit or if it is just like a kind of not even veiled misogyny about women's stories but when I think about Bridget and when I th- think about you know, when Harry met Sally, let's use those as two kind of case studies, but like they, they're both such character films before Mm -hmm. they even become anything romantic. You know, we know Harry, we know Sally, we know their lives separately. So by the time they get together, we're so invested in them. And the same is true for Bridget. Like we get to live in her little world and this movie is a tight 90 minutes and it accomplishes a lot. And I feel like everything that's being made now is a upwards of two hours and B we don't have, we don't know anything about anyone except what they kind of tell us. And there's no kind of chemist. I mean, I saw anyone but you recently 
and it made it made me feel like I was my head was about to fall off like I said (laughs) I said on the podcast to Kate my co-host like it made me feel both that like making a film is really really hard and that's why this turned out the way it did but also that making a film must be so easy if this if this got made because it's bizarre the script is wild the directing choices are wild there is no chemistry between those like the hunk and Sydney Sweeney you know um I, and it's just really grim I think there's been there's been a turn away from the fundamental core thing of a romantic comedy, which is the chemistry between the two people. And part of that is the writing, but most of it is this ineffable quality between two actors and whether they can bring out in each other, whether they really seem like they might be able to fall in love with each other. Um, I think, I don't know when exactly this started in the 2010s sometime, whenever they started doing that, every woman on TV suddenly had that hair that sort of loose waved hair. Even it's like Bridget has, up. Bridget has bad hair. Yeah. Right. Bridget fully has bad hair. Uh, Meg Ryan has different kinds of hair. Some of it's very bad in When Harry Met Sally. Uh-huh. Um, but they have like regular hair that like a woman would have. And then suddenly they stopped doing that and started making everyone look like a model. And it's like, I think that dinged the chemistry to have these people looking mm. too perfect because they need to, my casting note on Smothered was that they need to be really attractive, but they need to be the hottest people you've ever seen at a party. So like you still have access to people who look like that. They're not going home with you. They're, you know, our, our leads are like really gorgeous. They're going home with each other because they're both gorgeous, but yeah. you're at the same party. They still look like a human being that you might see. They live in the world. Um, yeah. And it, cause it, what it needs to feel above anything else is real, real chemistry, real situations. You know, the the earlier rom-coms don't really have all of this like body swapping time travel stuff happening. It's more like I saw this girl. I can't stop thinking about her. There's some kind of obstacle in the way. Nora Ephron used to say that there was like the Jewish and the, the Christian schools of romantic comedy yeah. and that the only obstacle in a Jewish romantic comedy is one or both characters neuroses. Like there's no actual, like there's no secret bet. There's no whatever. It's just like, we're people and we're kind of in our heads about it. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to crawl out of there and be with you. Yeah. And those kinds of small stakes problems became hard to sell and selling a movie with like not a famous person and it became hard to do. Mm. And so you lost the fundamental like realness of the genre that was what was driving people to watch them. I think like something like Past Lives, which isn't a comedy so much, but it's like a really effective romance because they feel so real and the situation is real. And again, the problem isn't like, some crazy problem where like my grandma won't give me my inheritance unless I pretend that I'm married to you and you're my boss and whatever. It's like the problem is in another life we could have gotten together, but we're living in this life and I got together with someone else Mm. and it's very romantic and it's very moving, but it's not, it's not like a huge high concept thing. Mm. It's something that works well in the kind of, cause I feel like romantic comedy uh, novels have um, kind of just endured and gotten better and better. I read like three Emily Henry books last year and they are all ostensibly the same story, which is like mm-hmm. people have fucked or wanted to find themselves <laughs> in the same place at a time in the future. 
they, they don't sleep together, but then they do. And the thing that is keeping them apart is geography. And that is a problem that eventually is solved. Like that's mm-hmm. every Emily Henry book, but I'm gripped for every single one because those characters are so well drawn and the sex scenes are good and the problems are like real human life problems and not, yeah, like very high concept things. When you mentioned past lives and also like the hair, I kept thinking about like it's the styling too. Like Bridget Jones yeah. doesn't feel styled even when she's coming into work to try to impress Daniel with like a little skirt or a see-through top. Like her see-through top is fugly. I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. I And I think it's like because she has – you're right. She doesn't have like – a good style, but she has a really cohesive style that feels really hers. Mm-hmm. I mean, fucking when Harry met Sally is the same. Those suits are crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And she's, you know, and like, and they tell the story in the outfits. She's wearing these really kind of like big bulky suits. And then one day Harry says to her, you should wear skirts more. You look really good in skirts. And the next scene we see her and she's wearing a fucking skirt. Mm. He loves him. She <laughs> loves him. And he's like, Little Brooks Brothers, like, jackets are so cute, too. And his um, dainty little waist and his little workout pants. so narrow. He's so petite treat, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it also – it's something that is the difference between, like, the original Sex and the City and the reboot, too, is that they looked – you know, Pat Field was styling those characters like people who lived in New York City and lived in the world – and when they return in the films too, but especially in the new series, they look like insane mannequins. Yeah, and it's it's similar. Like when you said, like the you know your casting note was there were the hottest people at the party. They still look like they live in our human realm, mm-hmm. which I'm realizing now. In anyone but you, I don't think those characters interact with anyone who is not like a a leading in the in the cast of the film except for like a brief kind of gag with a flight attendant or something. Um, <laughs> classic. Uh, I'm sure they thought that was there when Harry met Sally uh, nod. But yeah, there's these people don't live in the world. They're not human. And so they are not drawn as people because they only ever interact with other like heightened, bizarro world versions of people. I think it's very unsexy to look at someone and know that they look perfect with their clothes off. Like it's it's not like unsexy to look at, but it's unsexual. There's yeah. like a, a lacking of sexuality. There's no secrets when someone looks like that. You're not like, I wonder what's going on under there. You know exactly what's going on under there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Bridget, the what's going on under there for Bridget is so playfully done. Like I, I noticed last night as I was watching it, her arriving at the Kafka's motorbike launch obviously I've never said the word Kafka so many times in one hour but you know we know that she's got her undies on and she's like really feeling herself but she's still walking to a gallery in London and so she's had to try to look sexy but also warm and like that's really fun because she knows she's going to be carrying her coat all night so -hmm. she's not wearing a giant fucking doona like gown like Carrie Bradshaw wears the one time she has to walk anywhere you know (laughs) She's a human in the world. Yeah, I think yeah. I think a push towards more more realism. And that's again like these like catastrophe is is relatively like rooted in the real world. She has Sharon Horgan has this amazing wardrobe for a teacher, but True. <laughs> she's like the hottest best dressed teacher in the world. <laughs> yeah. 
But in oh. general, it, it feels very like rooted in reality. Their problems are the problems of real people. Their attraction is the attraction of real people. Um, it just feels feels real. Mm. And I think like to move away from the kind of Hollywood like veneer teeth people is a risky thing to do mm-hmm. for like defined financing. But I think it's like a strong thing to do to make uh, a romantic comedy. I'm trying to rebrand them as relationship comedies. Oh, yeah. I think the really good ones explore intimacy in general. You know, like the really good ones have the friends in Bridget Jones's diary are incredible. So They're good. so well drawn. Her relationship with her dad is beautiful. Her like more fraught relationship with her mom is really well observed. Mm-hmm. It's like a really gorgeous exploration. Even her relationship with Perpetua and Perpetua finally coming to defend her mm-hmm. and looking like a little too proud of herself at the end. But it also, it turns out she had a soft spot for Bridget the whole time. The whole time. Bridget kind of misunderstood her really. Those are interesting examinations of relationships. Yeah. Um, so that's my pitch for relationship comedy. Okay. I love this. Um I remember we did a um, one of these episodes on When Harry Met Sally for New Year's and we talked about, you know, Nora Ephron branding it as a talk piece. Like it's essentially just like a dialogue yeah. film where the people fall in love at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm so she- jealous of that. It's like all I ever want to write and do. Oh. And the notes are always like, what are the stakes? Like yeah. what's the plot? And I'm like, the stakes, the plot is they're falling in love with each other. And the stakes are both of them are going to die one day and they don't know when it's going to happen. <laughs> I, this is probably a perfect time to tell you that I really loved Smothered. I watched it in like one weekend um what was what was kind of the and I loved everything I know about love as well my friend and I talk about it very often as like the style that specific era to what is it like 2012 2012 yeah the era of like clothes I mean the Chelsea boots and the little dresses and the being in London of it I'm like yes this girl is looking at Alexa Chung street style photos before she gets dressed in the morning we talked in the writer's room so much about the Kate Moss for Topshop tea dress collection. <laughs> yes. A skinny scarf and a big long tea dress and tights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And it didn't feel like referential. It just felt like what that character would have in her wardrobe. Um, yes. Yeah. Loved those. Uh, anything you can tell me about uh, kind of the making of, I mean, your own rom-com essentially uh was it always imagined for tv or did you ever think that perhaps it would be a film I was actually brought on to smothered kind of late in the day it had been in development for a really long time as a concept and then they brought me in to do like my take on the concept as a script Mm -hmm. so it's not my baby or something that I'd been kind of thinking about forever Mm -hmm. um my real the thing that I was really excited about and the concept I thought was so interesting as a writer I was really drawn to like the co-creator Emma Lawson had kind of wanted to do something about being a young woman dating a man with a child and what intimacy looks like when someone has like a very important kind of primary relationship already that's not you and that's not going anywhere um so as a writer I was like really drawn to that kind of complicated intimacy that I hadn't really seen anywhere before. It's always an exciting moment when you're like, oh, no one's ever done that yet. Okay. And then what I was bringing to it was like just being obsessed with 
kind of those relationship movies that we've been talking about for the last hour Mm -hmm. Um, and particularly getting to write a British one, which was a lot of pressure. And we had a few moments on set where we would stop and John or Danielle, who are amazing leads would be like, that's not, we, I wouldn't say like British people don't use that word or they don't use that word that way. Yeah. Um, And I was like, damn it. There were like, we got most of them out of the scripting stage, but a couple of them snuck through and there, or there were little things like um, they end up in a karaoke booth in the pilot, and uh, John, the man, uh, sings "Night Moves" by Bob Seger, and nobody on set except the director George Belfield and I knew that song. And I was like, I don't care. We actually can't. Like, I can't think of what else we would use. I'm putting my foot down. If this is the one North Americanism that gets into the show, let it be Bob Seger. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't even know how a Brit would say Seeger Yeah, I mean he says it in the pilot he, And then he like <laughs> is trying to sing it And obviously doesn't know the words I caught a, a, a You know, we catch that all the time In like Australian set things Or whatever, you know Like I, I hate to just keep bringing up anyone but you But I feel like it's always a dead giveaway When they talk about someone throwing up And I'm like, mm. no, any Australian would say spew <laughs> the last kind of things on my on my notes about Bridget are kind of the grimmest which are like the responses to her body um yeah really and this is like we as we mentioned before like Natasha and uh the stick insect from the American office Lara um, oh my god, such a perfect American name for a nemesis. <laughs> um, you know, they both kind of talk about it. Bridget's talking about it so much. She's 60 kilograms. Like it's insane that this was like when you watch her with modern eyes. I feel like even when I was a kid watching her, I was like, she's a normal, cute little woman. She's so tiny. Yeah. And it's so twisted how much Renee Zellweger's like pack quote unquote packing on the pounds for this role was the story surrounding it. Yeah. I think the way that the media responded to Renee Zellweger gaining weight for the role and, and the idea of a leading actress who was like 135 pounds um, really explains why the character was written that way. Yeah. I feel like it's a little bit weird there was this article in the New York Times that I really took issue with on the 20th anniversary of the novel coming out that was like, women deserve better than Bridget Jones. Uh... Uh, <laughs> and I was like, listen, and it was largely to do with the fact that Bridget was sort of man obsessed and she was enjoying getting sexually harassed by her boss and she um, was obsessed with her weight. Mm-hmm. And I just think with the weight thing and the man thing, Bridget is, you know, reflective of the culture that she lived in. And I don't think that Helen Fielding making a character that was a realistic reflection of what women were concerned about at that time means that it is bad for women or that it, I think that like takes like that really bum me out because they imply that like the reader has no critical faculties at all to mm-hmm. understand that it's from a particular historical context mm-hmm. or to understand that it's an it's a novel and a portrait of a person and not like a feminist manifesto on how to live your life. Yes. Yeah. And um, I think I think there's also yeah, you're so right. And it's also like Bridget was a product of 
the time, like you said, the late 90s. And it's not as if when she picks up a magazine on her way home from like killing it at Sit Up Britain, that it's, <laughs> there are the kind of messages we see now about like health versus weight or like, you know, kind of self-love or like any kind of like posy post-2015 like messages would even those messages are still kind of like very closely linked to the original messaging of you should look a certain way yeah yeah we haven't really come that far and to to suggest that women are supposed to be totally above the dominant mode of thinking and experiencing the world that they were raised in is to ask for also bridget jones is a silly girl yeah. She's like not a great intellect. I don't know why you would expect incredible cultural analysis from Bridget Jones, the character or the novel. That's not, you know, that's not what the character's about. Yeah. She's about drinking wine and goofing off with her friends and smoking cigarettes and getting smooched. And that's, it's literally fine. <laughs> yeah. As you're saying that, I'm just remembering her first uh, interview for a TV job where they're like, what do you make of the El Nino phenomenon? And she goes, hmm. <laughs> Don't think it'll last. I, I, I don't think Latin music's here to stay. <laughs> she's a doofus. Yeah, she's a doofus. And I think, and I, I really do think that like people talking about Renee Zellweger's weight gain in such an intense way makes like if you li- if you look at any of those articles from that period, it makes total sense that a woman reading articles like that would be obsessed with her weight. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's creating a an Ouroboros of like Bridget's. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I did love there was a, a New York Times piece where, of course, they went into like what she ate, blah, 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 to like become Bridget. But the headline is a character actress trapped in an ingenue's body. And I was like, God, to go back to a time when we didn't know we wouldn't put Renee Zellweger in the headline of a profile of her <laughs> is really sweet to me. Um but also uh, Laura Snape, a writer that I love who works at The Guardian, wrote this piece basically about – it's called My Favourite Film, Age 12. And she wrote about Bridget and being a teenage girl and seeing kind of teenage girlness reflected back via mm. Bridget, via the future. Um, and it was just really great because I was like, yeah, Bridget is kind of like an overgrown little girl. Yes. She's like – you know, she's writing in her diary about boys and her butt and <laughs> her, like, you know, not having the job that she wants to have because she doesn't know what she wants to do. Before we get to our recommendations at the end of the episode, I do need to make mention of a very brilliant birthday party I went to last year. My friend Oliver was turning, I believe, 32, which is the age Bridget, no, 33, the age Bridget turns in the film. And he had a Bridget Jones themed dinner party where he not only made caperberry gravy and blue soup on purpose (laughs) but we like we ate it around a table that I have photos from this night and there's like a half-eaten cake and there's a um an ashtray next to it you know it was very very Bridget and her what does she call them urban family that's so stunning it was incredible and there were a lot of like come the fuck on Bridget's all night, <laughs> which is just perfect. Any opportunity to, to let it rip. <laughs> um, okay, Monica, I want to hear what your recommendations are for this, for this Bridget episode. Okay. My Bridgety recommendations are um, bread and butter Chardonnay. 
<laughs> Brilliant. Okay, because Chardonnay is the wine of the 90s, I feel. And bread and butter is lovely and affordable. It's my friend's. My friend has it in her house. She buys like a crate and it's her house wine. Oh, I um, love that. And I love to go over for a bread and butter Chardonnay. Uh, and then I, if you want a book that's about like a funny and strange and interesting woman that has that hit of nostalgia that Bridget Jones's diary also has, I would recommend The Rachel Incident by my friend, the writer Caroline O'Donohue. Um, it's funny. It's strange. It takes place in the sort of recent past. And it's also a love story, but not a traditional one. I loved it. It was it was so good. Yeah. The moment in the bookstore that happens early on, I guess. Oh. <laughs> I know. I think friend. the sex scenes in general are really good in it. And and modern day sex scenes are hard to come by. Mm-hmm. Such a good book. My, I also have a book to recommend and I mentioned it earlier. It's Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld. It's her modern Pride and Prejudice adaptation. And it is also like besides the the Colin Firth version, the only Pride and Prejudice I have ever consumed. I know there are more. I know I need to watch them. I'm getting around <laughs> to it. They're on the list. Um, and the other one is uh, in tribute to uh, the woman who kind of soundtracked uh, the fight scene in this film, Jerry Hallowell. I'm going to recommend the Robbie Williams documentary on Netflix. Uh, I love Robbie. I've been trying to find vintage Robbie Williams merch. If anyone knows where to find one of the soccer jerseys with his initials on it, I will pay big bucks because I've got a real soft spot for that man and always have and always will. We didn't even talk about Valentine's Day, but everything about Bridget is romantic to me. Oh, yeah. I guess Valentine's Day is coming up like this weekend, next yeah. week. Next week. I'm not really... I'm not, it's not really on my radar this year. TBH. Same. Uh, <laughs> my sister's coming to visit. That's, uh, that's about it for me. Um, oh my God. That's such a grim note to end on, but it's true. <laughs> um, it'll be over by the time this episode comes out. So maybe uh, my next thing year. is that whether I'm single or in a relationship, I'm never really that interested in being in a restaurant with that much crowdedness and pressure. No, never. I'm always like, whoever whoever is most important to me that year, please come over and watch a movie. And that's Valentine's Day. Yeah. The the only good thing is seeing like men in suits carrying like supermarket flowers home because they've just realized. I do have a – anytime I see someone carrying flowers, that's very like, you know, Kat Cohen has that joke, like woman in a, woman in a film. It's so it's very woman, in a, woman film. in a film behavior and man in a film as well. Yes, Bridget, when she's like preparing for the blue soup dinner, she's so woman in a film carrying her groceries. <laughs> um, if you're interested in checking out Monica's work, Smothered is on Binge in Australia. Really good, actually, is in all your favorite bookshops. Um, I recommended it on the podcast last year, so I'm sure you've already bought and read it. Thank you so much, Monica. That was so fun. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, we're at See Also Podcast on Instagram. Thanks to Samuel Hodge for our artwork, Harvey Sutherland for our theme music, and Kate and I will see you soon. Wow. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 